Welcome to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. For a Living explores working lives. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkey. And in my hope to close the social distance, I'm seeking to shape a space to hedge against their daily tsunami of celebrity navel-gazing and political pablum by giving voice to good, hard-working people who have no agenda here other than to explore what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning into this special episode. Special because I'm joined by a very special guest, but also special because this here episode wraps up the ninth season for a living. Mm-hmm. Ninth. I reckon uh, my humble pandemic projects become something of an obsession, uh, probably an addiction, if I'm to be honest here. But listen, y'all, I have had much less healthy, much less meaningful, much less gratifying obsessions and addictions in my time. And listen, on my best days, I feel like my obsession over this podcast pays off. Yeah, like today. Look, today I get to hop on mic. I get to look back on season nine. And season nine was the perfect octet of episodes. Uh, Perfect? I mean, yeah, kind of perfect. I mean, it was everything I had hoped it would be. The season took flight with an air traffic controller who was introduced to me by a patron of the podcast, Carl Hauk. Uh, This guy was the perfect guest. And from there, I had the opportunity to share conversations with a life coach, a Baptist pastor, got to talk to a luxury watch salesman and a race car engineer. I got behind the curtain with the star of the stage who plays Angelica Schuyler in Hamilton. And, and after seven seasons of nudging, sometimes pestering, mostly kind of like gently nudging, I got my dear pal Patrick on the pod. Definitely worth the wait. If you haven't listened to that episode with Patrick Baker, hop to the boy's amazing. And today, today I get to wrap the season with a, a kind and compassionate funeral director who uh, laid my mom to rest. So there's that. But before we get to him, it's tradition around here to wrap the season by giving thanks. It's the right thing to do. It feels good to do it. So big thanks to all y'all who reached out. Some of you just dropped me a quick line, usually just to say something sweet. Always like that. Some of you slid into my DMs with quick questions. I gave quick responses, sometimes long responses, but always quick. Some of you wrote emails, sharing elaborate reflections on an episode. It all means the world to me. Connection is everything here. So thank you so much for reaching out, for sharing a vibe, just for being there with me. And big thanks to all y'all who heeded my call to share your favorite episodes with your people. Listen, I can't really compete with the high drama of political theater, and I'm not particularly interested in chatting with celebrities. And the truth is, I'm not really in the market to pay for advertising. I I rely on you. This podcast grows by word of mouth. So big thanks to anyone out there who did your part to share this podcast and in doing so, magnify the voices of good, hardworking folks. And last and certainly not least, special thanks 
to those who took the step to support this thing over on Patreon. Listen, I, I don't know how to put a cash value on this thing. On one hand, it's, it's my pleasure and my privilege to share these conversations. At the same time, I firmly believe that what we're doing here has a value. And I want to thank all of you who agree with that and have chosen to become patrons. And if you've been listening and you've been thinking about becoming a patron, and if you have the means to support people who create content that matters to you, this being the end of the season, perfect time to sign up. Just head over to patreon.com slash for living. That's patreon.com slash for living. I link to it in the show notes. And it would be my honor to, to have your support. And it's my honor to wrap up season nine with funeral director and founder of Chicago Jewish Funerals, David Jacobson. Now, I sort of figured it kind of made sense to close this season of the pod with a guy who's a seasoned professional at bringing closure. Right? By my reckoning, there was a certain poetry to that. But the truth is that while David's brought closure to more people than I can imagine, his work, I've come to learn, has much more to do with affirming life than it has to do with the inevitable end that faces us all. David discusses his daily commitment to meeting mourners where they're at, to comforting them. He's committed to making time, all the time, 24-7, just to be there, to hold space, to listen. We discuss the role that Jewish traditions and rituals, some of which you might know, others you probably don't, but the role that those Jewish traditions and rituals play in his work. Oh, and uh, I, I share with him the kind of dark, kind of funny story of planning my mom's Zoom funeral with him. David is, and I really mean this, a, a beacon of hard-earned wisdom. They, they don't make him like this guy anymore. So get some while you can and join me in conversation with David Jacobson of Chicago Jewish Funerals. David Jacobson, welcome to For a Living. How do you describe what you do? First of all, thank you very much, and uh, I hope you and your audience are well. It, it's really basic. I would say my, my goal and what I do is care for the deceased and comfort the mourner. And the rest of it is all, you know, the expression of that. And what I mean by that is when someone dies, we care for their physical remains in the most respectful way in honoring their uh, traditions and beliefs and also comforting the mourner by giving them the opportunity to mourn and to grieve and to experience this transition of life in the most meaningful way for them to help them live what we would call a new normal. Hmm. I like that idea of trying to create a new normal and I want to get into that as well as I want to get into the other facets of your description. But before we do, I'm real curious, how did you get on this path? That is a very good question. <laughs> so my father had a very small funeral home in Utica, New York. Every day after high school, I'd move chairs, vacuum rugs, wash cars. 
Now, my older brother uh, was very close to my father, and he always wanted to be in the profession. I, on the other hand, did not. So when, I, when it was my turn to go to college, I, you know, I had to figure out what I wanted to do, and I figured I would just get my degree in mortuary science and funeral service as a backup and then go on to graduate school or whatever. When I went to university, I ran out of money, and uh, my brother got me a job. Uh, he worked in Florida, and um, the main company was in Chicago, so he got me a job. And they said to me when I was working for this company, we're going to hire you and we're going to fire you because we really don't need you, but we're doing a favor for your brother, which was very nice of this company. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so the year was up, and not only did they want me to stay, they were very nice to me as far as um, giving me opportunities and then I started to really enjoy what I was doing because it was more service-oriented, serving people as opposed to washing cars, vacuuming rugs, and moving chairs. And uh, as, as time went on, I became a partner of this uh, closely held family business, and then I was their first non-family owner, and then I became a managing partner. Well, several years later, the big corporations were coming in and buying funeral homes, and uh, the, the family decided to sell. And I realized that big companies and corporations are not for me. So without any lawsuits, without any issues, um, I decided to leave uh, the corporate world, and I started uh, Chicago Jewish Funerals, which was very small at the time. I wanted to serve people, and I feel if you serve people, the rest will come. And uh, after several ulcers and a lot of uh, a lot of working hard, yeah. you know, that's my path. David, I want to say something almost painfully obvious uh, here. It, you know, it, it's probably part of the human condition to, to seek to avoid death. You know, even the discussion of it, right? Death is the ultimate taboo subject. A lot of us even wince at its mention. And I hope I might be able to humbly urge you to talk about why you've chosen, you know, not to avoid death, but to devote your working life to it. I, I have to say, I don't look at it that way. I look at it more as life that, you know, I have this one opportunity to go through this path and I don't look at everything as death. I look at it as, you know, every day is a gift. Um, I spent some time uh, this year in Israel, and I just spent a lot of time at the beach watching the water go in and out and realizing that I'm just passing through. And this water is going to be here long after I'm dead and gone. But while I'm here, I'm going to try to do what I do in the, in the, in the best possible way, to try to make the world a better place, to try to be charitable try to give people some comfort, you know, and, and also I, I consider myself, as strange as it sounds, a contrarian. You know, everyone says, you know, about this with funerals or that, and I look at it as a different way, as we have an opportunity to bring the family together, and yes, there's a lot of tragedy, but from this tragedy we can learn. I mean, death is just a natural, it's just natural, it happens to all of us. We're all going to die, and we can, you know, express our sympathies and condolences, and then we move on. But then 
you know, if for them, their whole life changed, be it, you know, if the person was 95 years old or 20 years old. So to me, it's all precious time, and I try not to waste it. So I, I don't look at it just as death morbid. I look at it as a way of life. I really respect that, man. That's really uh, affirming. And I trust I'm going to be able to hear more kind of like affirmational statements like that as our conversation goes on. And there's so much I want to talk to you about, David. There's so many interesting and challenging dimensions to your work. So it's really hard for me to determine exactly where we should start here. But I think maybe we should just start with how it starts. When you meet someone for the first time, to arrive at a, a shared vision for a funeral service, whether it's planning their funeral service for when that time comes, or planning the funereal services for a loved one. Like, how do these discussions tend to start? Where does it all begin? Well, the first place is we're grateful and humbled that the people trust us to take care of them or their loved one. So that's always expressed. The most important thing that, that I try to get across right from the beginning is the answer is yes. So whatever you want, we will make it happen. Having said that, I try to give family options that they didn't even know existed. So if something's meaningful to them, try to incorporate that. For instance, you know, if someone liked uh, chocolate, you know, then we try to bring chocolate into the service, be it, you know, have maybe little uh, chocolate bars on everyone's chair. And during the eulogy, you know, the, the person might say, let's just take a moment and, and think of a, a sweet thought about the person who died and put that chocolate in your mouth. The whole idea is to give the family the freedom to decide how they want to do it. Now, keep in mind, we're a Jewish funeral home. You know, there are traditions and, and customs that we always want to be respectful to. By the same token, we want to incorporate that the person's life or the family's style of living into that. Uh, I can tell you once we had a, uh, a family loved Harley's. And uh, we had a Harley in the lobby. <laughs> we had a family that liked uh, the Grateful Dead. Now, keep in mind, I'm an Elton John fan. But uh, <laughs> we covered all of our furniture in the lobby with tie-dye, you know, tie-dye sheets. And Grateful Dead was a big part of the, the service. So we tried to tear down those barriers first thing and just say the answer is yes. The other thing which I've learned is when we make arrangements or have discussions, when we make them in people's homes, it's much more comfortable for them. And we try to encourage that because most decisions that people make are around the kitchen table. And also when you go into someone's home, you feel the energy of either the person you're, you're talking to in their environment or the person who died and you see the pictures around. So the, the, the short answer is, Yes, let's, let me get to yes. Let me get to the idea of what's important to you. And then again, the rest is creating that, that experience for them. So I'm picturing you at someone's dinner table and they've recently lost or they expect they might soon enough lose a loved one. And you tell them, you know, anything you want, we'll do whatever we can for you. Yes, yes, yes. And that must be very comforting. And I'll bet you're great at it, I should say. Thank you. But I'll bet 
sometimes you rub up against some difficult decisions. And I wonder what some of the hardest decisions are that people need to make with regard to funereal services. And, and then like maybe how you guide them through those decisions. We just had a situation that was very challenging for the family in that you know, the, you know, the tradition of the Jewish people is burial. And we try to encourage that as much as possible to follow the traditions of our people. The family had a different uh, thought process. More importantly, the deceased had a different thought process. And we, we explored all the different options. And they really weren't sure. And what I learned was, when I met with them the first time, all I really wanted to do was to give them options. No decisions. Keep in mind, I knew the person who died. And I wanted to be respectful of what was important to that person as well. And as, as opposed to going to the home and, okay, let's get this decision, let's do this, let's do that, time was, was probably the most important thing they needed. So I went to the family again the following day, and you know we talked a little bit more. And each time I got more information, but it still wasn't there yet. And then I went back later that evening. And ultimately, they made their decision, and we executed exactly what they wanted, keeping in mind taking the traditions of our people and also understanding what he wanted and what the family wanted. And I have to say, I was very uh, moved by how we got there. And I felt uh, surprisingly very proud of myself only because I realized this wasn't going to be go to the home, let's make these decisions and leave. It was giving them as much time as they needed because this was a very difficult decision, what they were trying to accomplish and keeping in mind with the traditions of our people. So it's not always easy, and it's not always you know, obvious. And keep in mind, people don't necessarily know what they want. That's, that's a whole interesting process. But I like doing that with a family. This way they own it versus you know, the funeral director coming in and saying, okay, this is what we're doing. And I don't think that that's a healthy way of uh, conducting oneself. You know, as you were kind of describing this conversation and the scene I had painted in my head, it dawned on me that when I think about funereal services, in my mind's eye, I'm always thinking about an elderly person whose time has come. But it's really not that tidy, is it? And so I guess maybe I could ask you if you'd be willing to talk about it how your work changes or how you're feeling about your work changes when it's not a 99-year-old who's passing, but a 9-year-old or a 20-year-old. How does that kind of change the landscape of your work? Oh, it's terrible. We have, a, we have a rule at the funeral home that if you deal with a tragedy, if you're with a family that had a tragedy, Unless the, the next family asks for you specifically, we give it to another funeral director because it does take its toll. 
I'll, I'll tell you a story that uh, really affected me. We had a, a, a child who died, maybe it was one or two years old. And I remember the rabbi calling me and he said, you have to come to the house. And we did the funeral like two days later. And never in my career, never have I ever seen a parent take a child from the casket and just hold her. And I mean, to this day, you know, I, I, I can remember those screams of this woman holding her daughter <sighs> and the father just pacing on the uh, bima or the, the front part of the synagogue. So it was just a terrible experience for me just to, to watch, but you have to be there to take care of the family. So later that night, I went to, a, uh, to an outdoor concert and I ran into someone at the funeral or at the concert who was at the funeral. And she said to me, oh, that was really terrible. And then in a, in a just a matter of fact way, but you're used to it, it, it doesn't really affect you. That comment was so hurtful to me that for the rest of the evening, it just, it just sat with me. And the next day, I had to call this person who I know, a friend of mine, and I said, I have to tell you, I, I, I understand, you know, to a point what you are saying, but I found it very offensive because I'm not, a, I'm not a robot. I'm a human being. Anybody that experiences something like that, if it doesn't affect you, there's something wrong. And I just said, you know, I, I, I appreciate, you know, thinking about that. And even though, I mean, we're friends, but it, but it was a very hurtful comment. And I, and I don't want to be perceived that way as, oh, it doesn't bother you. It's, you're used to it. And, and no, that's quite the opposite. And I think that, you know, when you're walking into someone's home and you're seeing someone who took their own life and, and you're sitting there with the parents and before the police finish their investigation, I don't know how it doesn't affect you as a human being. So, so yeah, I think about a lot of that, and I think about, you know, my own children. I was just at a service recently where someone uh, lost her battle with depression, and I saw two other parents at that funeral that had a child who died, and one even worked for me part-time. So not only was the funeral really sad. It's seeing the people that you've served before and, and just seeing the sadness in their eyes and feeling that energy between, between us, you know, the, it was, it's very hard. That's why I, I believe in therapy. I believe in Prozac. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. believe in, you know, self-care. And, and sometimes you just have to walk away from it, you know, and, and, and take a break and, and take a day and, and just say, you know, I, I can't really do this right now. And uh, the older I get, this seems like uh, it's, it's a healthier way for me to cope with things. Yeah, I'm feeling you, man. I'm feeling you. I'm also thinking about there was a, I think it was a Woody Allen movie where one of the characters says, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Huh. And nobody does, but you and your colleagues are there face to face with death, with grief, day after day. And you've hinted at it a little bit, but I'd love to hear you talk more about it. Like, how, how do you keep yourself? How do you keep your colleagues 
as healthy as possible in light of the the grief with which you interface day after day? That's a challenge at times, especially during COVID. Uh, that was like really intense. So I try to be lighthearted in the, uh, you know, in the work environment away from the deceased, away from everyone. I plan a couple parties a year uh, for the staff that are away from the public. And I have an open bar for them. I have transportation for them, whatever they need. Yeah, I try to, you know, just give words of encouragement at times. And also, you know, I, I appreciate words of encouragement. It's just treating people the way you want to be treated. And it, it, it is intense, especially when you're their boss, so to speak, and you're also their colleague because I'm a very active funeral director, so I'm experiencing what they're experiencing. So we go through this together. Uh, it, it's not easy, but I, I, I think that if, if you tear down any of your uh, barriers and you just become a human being to them and, and they to you, it seems to work. Like I've also had, you know, the David Jacobson lunch club where they got a funny letter and a hundred dollars to say, okay, listen, sometimes I can't buy lunch, but here you go have lunch whenever you want. Um, <laughs> during COVID to make it a little uh, less scary or a little bit more lighthearted, if you will, uh, we went to the M&M factory or the company and we got everybody a couple pounds of M&Ms. Now, this was the fun part. On one side of the M&M was their picture. <laughs> On the other side of the M&M was their name. And then there were just plain old M&Ms. So can you imagine when they're going home, you know, to their families, to their spouses, their kids, or to their parents, and they're like, hey, check this out. Yeah. We just got a couple pounds of M&Ms, and I'm famous. Look, there's my picture. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh Real quick nuts and bolts question. How many people do you work with? How many people are on your team? Uh, give or take 30, you know, between full-time and part-time. Okay, so that's a whole uh, a team that you have to manage, that you have to work with and for, and 30 people who you have to be really mindful of kind of how they're doing, where they're at, Yeah. Sure. And they also have their own tragedies. I mean, keep in mind, these are 30 different lives. So they're having births, they're having deaths, they're having surgeries, they're having issues at home. And they're also having all the nice things in life. But it's, it's 30 people that are living their life. And when I think about the 25 years that Chicago Jewish Funerals has been in existence and the amount of deaths that we've had, so you really have to be mindful of all that and just be there with them. Yeah. Well, I will say that our listeners don't know this, but I don't mind saying it. And tell me if you are uncomfortable talking about it here. But you were with my family and, and I wasn't uh, when my mom passed a couple of years ago. And it made me think about it because you, you, you brought up COVID. Can I ask you a, a question about my mother's funeral. Would you mind? Sure. So many years ago, uh, my, my dad uh, had purchased funeral services for him and for my mom, and I think for his, his brother also. And he's a pretty good planner that way, like respect to Elazar. 
And uh, my mom fought a long battle against Alzheimer's and dementia. And uh, a year into COVID, she succumbed to all of it. Yeah. And um, my brother and my dad, uh, they, they called me on FaceTime as they were driving to Chicago Jewish funerals. And, you know, there was like no way to have a funeral. This is like the, the, the height of the pandemic uh, in Chicago and here in Germany. And so I couldn't be there, but they wanted me to kind of like be in the mix. So they just kind of kept me, as you might recall, on FaceTime while they went into the funeral home and they kind of put me on, on your desk, I presume. And so like there was just no way that we were going to have a Zoom funeral. Like this was like uh, my dad and my brother and I were like, no, we're not going to have a Zoom funeral. We paid for a funeral. My dad's like really like anti-technology, like almost beyond reason. I'm not going to have a Zoom funeral. Like screw this. And so my brother basically said, look, my dad needs the community there. And so he's like, will you just stay on this call to, to support me? We got to have like an in-person funeral. And I didn't know how that was going to look, but like he was committed to the idea. And so they bring me into Chicago Jewish funerals. And first, I have to say, I was like surprised by how composed and confident you were. You, 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 you read the room, like you got a real quick sense of who my dad and my brother are, right? They're both businessmen. And you, to your credit, you cut right to the chase, right? You were, you were direct, you weren't forceful, but direct, right? Like no bullshit, super smart. You walk them through the problem, and the problem was it's the peak of the pandemic and people just couldn't convene. There was just no way around it. So you said, Al, Brad, Daniel, listen, you know the score. We can't bring the community together. I, I think you should have a Zoom funeral. And then you went on to explain why. And of course, the short of it was that my family and friends, they needed that closure. The ceremony mattered, and you knew that. You knew that. And, and so you tell us why we need a Zoom funeral. And, and right as my brother and I were like both like perched to like rebuke this idea because we needed to have, for my dad mostly, the community together, you know, and we're like, no Zoom, no way. And then you say, listen, we need to have a Zoom funeral. And then when the pandemic is over, we can have a proper in-person ceremony, free of charge. You already paid for it. And now, David, all of a sudden, you know, Brad and Al are into the idea of a Zoom funeral. Like you made that possibility, which was so impossible to us. You made it attractive. And I wanted to ask you about this. Not that I want to talk about the pandemic all day, because I definitely don't. But I did want to ask you about this. So first, I have to tell you, it's kind of a salty joke, but I'm kind of a salty fella. We, we set the date for the Zoom funeral and we got off this, the, the FaceTime call. And I said to my wife, this, this Jacobson guy, he's a genius. Of course, he knows that three Jewish guys are going to take two funerals for the price of one. How could we say no? <laughs> but but I, I, I actually just want to thank you because um, you were right. You know, you were. My dad, my family, but mostly my dad. We needed that ceremony. We needed that end, any end, after eight years of Alzheimer's and dementia. So I, I, I guess I want to thank you for your guidance. But what I really want to ask you is how you managed to maintain the confidence and the poise to listen to people, to, to hear what they want, and to guide them to the best solutions when they're under such duress. First of all, thank you for your kind words. I think that, you know, I put myself in, in their shoes. 
I, I don't want to hear no. I never want to hear the word no. Get me to yes. And sometimes you have to take a circuitous route just to figure out what what other options are there. You know, I'll, I'll tell you a story that um, it was uh, many years ago, and it was in the middle of the winter, and we had someone who died, and they wanted a funeral. It was a Sunday, like 11 o'clock in New York. So we were going to transfer the deceased via air, airplane, you know, on a Saturday night after Shabbat to go to New York. Well, the airlines refused the deceased because he was too heavy. And keep in mind, you know, in the last probably five, six years, the airline industry has totally changed. And going to New York from Chicago, even though there are flights every hour, they're not wide-body jets, and you have to have a wide-body jet. So we called the family, and we said, listen, the airlines is refusing you know, the person. We have three choices. Let's move the funeral to Monday. This way we can fly Sunday on a wide-body jet. That's option one. Option two is I'll hire a private jet. Option three, we will drive all night and get to New York, and you'll have the funeral. So they thought about it. I gave them the price structure of each, and they said, drive. So keep in mind, my people were already at the airport. I had them come back here. I loaded them with food, and they drove all night to New York, and they had a funeral at 11 o'clock on Sunday. And I think that by giving people the option, now just say they said, let's just do it Monday. They knew that I was not going to say no to Sunday. They needed to make that decision. And I think that's empowering. And also I think it's a great story for them too. So after the funeral, they could say, oh, you know, dad would have, uh, you know, not eaten that extra hamburger you know, every night, you know, because, it, but, but it's a story, you know, and I, I think it's a, it's a good story for them. Yeah. You know, as tragic as the moment is of someone dying, that there was a little humor in it and that their father gave them a, a, a couple more choices to make. But we, but we made it happen. As, as a team, we made it happen. Yeah. I have a question about that. So when people are stressed out, they're grieving, they're not always the best decision makers. But you very kindly offer them a menu and you're going to say yes. But I wonder if in the back of your head, you're like, you know, these people are great, but I know they're not doing well. They haven't slept in a couple of days ever since dad died or ever since little Johnny died. Maybe I need to guide them through this because they're not making the right decision here. Okay. So, so I think we talked about that earlier with, with my friend who they, they just needed time. And I think sometimes that's what we just have to do is give them time. You know, which, what's interesting is giving the people access to, to, to me or to one of my directors. So if someone says, you know, I really don't know, you know, and, and I think you're 100% right about the sleep deprivation and things like that, then we give them time, but also access. So when someone wants to call me at 2 o'clock in the morning and say, you know, David, I, I really... This has been bothering me before, you know, the morning. Can you just explain, you know, if we did X, how is that going to look? Of course. Yeah. 
you know, and it's constantly giving them and consistently giving them access. And I think the success of any company or, or uh, institution is having effective communication and also very uh, um, easy to communicate as far as access. The, the one thing I find frustrating is sometimes like I'm looking for, you know, my doctor to call me back or can someone just call me back? We don't have that in my, in my world. You know, when someone calls us, either we pick up the phone or we get back to them so quickly. And I think that even in our interactions, you know, that, that when you reached out to me, the response was pretty, pretty quick. Yeah. You know, I, I think I remember you making a comment to say, what's your sleep pattern? And I'm thinking, uh-huh. I don't have a sleep pattern. And the phone buzzes. I, I respond. It's really true. I will confirm this for our listeners. And since you brought it up, I'm going to ask you about it. Is it indeed the case that you're on call 24-7? Yes. And I'm not on a schedule. My staff has a schedule, you know, so every night someone's on call or several people are on call. But I take care of people that I know, and um, I'm always available to the staff uh, and to my colleagues. So, yes, and it's, it's a lifestyle. You know, every day, it's sort of like Groundhog Day. Every day is the same, but it's a little different. But you're always available. I respect that profoundly. I also wonder if it takes a toll. Yes. Is it hard on you? Some of it is. I remember when my mother turned 70 and we had a big party for her in Chicago. And I hired a, a cantor to sing to her because my mom loved chazanish or, you know, the cantorial music of our people. Yeah. And in the middle of uh, one of the beautiful uh, songs, a friend of mine calls me and says, my granddaughter was just hit. She was crossing the street and she died. And I said to my friend, just give me five minutes. I'll call you right back. So here I am with my whole family, which is rarely together, you know, my mother's children, uh, grandchildren, and that just changed everything. You know, so here where I wanted to focus on my mother, now I'm focused on, you know, the call that I have to make in three to five minutes, but also trying to keep my composure of like being there for my mom and my, my wife and children and my nephews and siblings. So yeah, it, it takes a toll. And, uh, but it's a decision, it's a decision I made and you just have to do that. And, uh, it's not always in the most opportune time. However, one could look at it or I look at it as, oh my gosh, my friend's granddaughter was just killed by a car, you know, in a car accident. And he called me. Hmm. How humbling is that, that he trusts me to take care of his granddaughter, no matter where I am you know, in my day, you have to step back and go, he trusts me to do this. And uh, that, that's very humbling. So, you know, the, there's that other side of it, which uh, keeps you, I hate to say it again, but humbled. I, I respect that uh, profoundly. And I imagine that you can take some comfort in that humility I'm thinking about your role as a comforter. 
And listen, I, I know you can't take the pain away when someone loses a loved one. And a lot of your work, is, as I imagine it, is wrapped up in comforting mourners. I'm curious about how you provide comfort to mourners. And, and, and in particular, what do you say to them to give them not, not relief, you can't do that, but comfort? I think just being there is, is, is huge. And, and for them to know that I'm a phone call away, or if they, they say, I need to see you, that I'm going to say yes. And that they're not going on this experience alone. And that they have somebody, you know, in their back pocket that will just be there for them. And, and that's a culture of, of my company, too. You know, yesterday I was driving and I got uh, two emails came into the funeral home. And one was that they were trying to find a clergy. Now, within a matter of, I want to say, 90 seconds of that email coming, I called this person and I said, let me reach out to the clergy because I'm not going to give you their information, you know, for their privacy. And she goes, wait a minute. I just sent this like not even 90 seconds ago. But that's the type of response we gave them. And, you know, then I contacted the clergy. The clergy contacted, you know, the, the original uh, person who sent the email. And they felt comforted. They felt totally taken care of. And I think that it doesn't end with a funeral. And I think it's all about a relationship. And it's all about saying, hey, I'm present for you. And I think once you establish that kind of connection with people, so when someone calls and says, you know, my loved one dies, you know, even before this podcast, a friend of mine called me and he told me his father died. And, um, and after this, I'm going to go be with him. You know, but he, he called me on, on my cell phone. And of course I'm going to answer and of course I'm going to be there for him. Knowing that someone's there with you takes a lot of stress away for, for, the, for the mourners. It, it, it transcends the death. It, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like just having you know, a friend walk with you all the time. Though I'm not friends with everybody, but I want to be there for them. Yeah. I, you know, I got to tell you, I, I'm thinking about you driving around, taking care of all this business, and I'm almost picturing you in like an Acura NSX, like Mr. Wolf in Pulp Fiction. Like, you don't have to worry about it. Mr. Wolf <laughs> is on it. Like, you're constantly taking care of business in this effort to be there for people when they most need you. Uh, and I gotta say, I, I respect it profoundly. Uh, maybe from the profane of uh, Pulp Fiction uh, to the sacred. And we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but I, I wonder how spirituality broadly, uh, religion maybe more specifically, how spirituality and or religion inform your work as a Jewish funeral director? I would not consider myself a person that's spiritual. However, I love the traditions of our people and I like being Jewish. In the Jewish world, charity is, is part of the DNA. You know, you're, you're brought up to give charity. So I have a charity uh, in memory of my brother who died that there's not a single Jewish person in Chicago that's cremated for the lack of money, so we'll, we'll, we'll bury them. 
because sometimes people have this perception that cremation is uh, less expensive, or there's not a single Jew that can't afford burial because we'll underwrite it. And I think that knowing that that we have the uh, the power and the resources to do that, and keep in mind, I am not a wealthy person, but I realized you don't have to have hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's just dollars at a time. And and if you do the labor and there's no fee for the labor and the, all you're covering are direct costs, you know, it's a good feeling. But then again, I think that we all try to do something nice for humanity. If, if that's the spiritual side of me, then, then that's what it is. You know, if you try to do one th- nice thing a day for, you know, humanity, it doesn't have to be big. That, that's my spiritual route, if you will. Yeah, you're a real mensch, Jacobson. I got to tell you. Um, you brought up uh, religious traditions or, or cultural traditions, as it were. Are there parts of the Jewish funeral tradition or the Jewish funeral ceremony that kind of resonate with you, or perhaps parts of that tradition that you that you even maybe enjoy or take comfort in? A hundred percent. I think the traditions of our people are brilliant. When it comes to the the deceased, the way they're cared for, the washed, where men wash men, women wash women. We have a mikvah, which is a uh, um, it's, it's, it's rainwater mixing with regular water, and it's a purification. And every tradition has it. Call it baptism, call it whatever. You know, in, in our tradition, women go to the mikveh every month. Uh, men go before Shabbat, you know, in the tr- very traditional people. And when one dies, we have a special mikveh just for the deceased. And then they're dressed in a shroud. And the, the shroud is just white. There are no pockets in the shroud. And it symbolizes you can't take it with you. And that we're all the same. And going back to this charity that I have, if you were to take a billionaire and have them lie next to a person who was on the street, and keep in mind there are many impoverished Jewish uh, people, you can't tell the difference when they're both dressed in a shroud, who's rich, who's not. And I think there's a, a great deal of a, of, a, of a level playing field, if you will, because we're all the same. And I think it's the fool who thinks, that because I have this or that, or because of my stature in, in life, that I'm this. At the end of the day, we're all the same. And we all return to the earth and we all give the earth the nutrients of our body and to help the earth. And, and the people that wash the deceased are, are, are many times people from the community. You know, if they're following the tradition, you know, there's a group called the Chavra Kadisha or a holy society. And they come in, you know, men well, wash men, women wash women. And then the, the shroud and then the casket is simple. It's just, it's a, it's a wooden casket. No matter what it's made from, be it, you know, pine, mahogany, cherry, it doesn't matter, but the caskets are, are all very simply designed. So I, I like it all. I think that, that there's, a, there's a lot of wisdom, and there's also a lot of wisdom in the period of Shiva, of, of the morning, and then the year of saying Kaddish. And, and it's not just religion about it. It's about community. So think about people being together you know, remembering the deceased, if, if you're following, you know, in the, in the very traditional of going to synagogue twice a day, once for the morning service and then once for the afternoon and evening service and saying a prayer for the deceased, and then you're having a whole community around you. It, it's that's I think it's a it's a brilliant idea. Yeah, it can be real powerful. I, I was kind of reflecting recently and thinking about our 
conversation that was coming up about kind of like the feeling I used to get when at the temple they would sing uh, Ose Shalom and there was sort of this um, lilting to that prayer. And I'm not a religious nor for that matter, a particularly spiritual person, but I remember as as a young man, as a as a boy, hearing Ose Shalom and kind of feeling a sense of peace that was brought to the service or or to the temple. And I didn't quite make sense of it until I was thinking about you leading up to this conversation. I, I have two questions about what you just said about ceremony. One is about like the ritual washing and then another is about Shiva. Perhaps I'll just ask them in, in that order. There is this, I think it's called Tahara. Yes. Cool. Uh, my, my Hebrew school education is coming in handy here, finally. Um, <laughs> the, 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 this ritual washing. Um, is this something that you sometimes do? Is it something that you've done? Can you talk about that work? Yes. So when I was a kid, after I was 13, after I had my bar mitzvah, remember I come from a small town. So if a Jewish person died and they were male, um, I would help with the, the ritual washing. Um, and the, the word tahara just, it means purification. But I want to go back to something you said about Oseh Shalom, just for a quick moment. Yeah. You know, and you said it gave you some peace. And the, it, what I find fascinating, the word shalom, besides meaning peace, hello, goodbye, the root word is shalem, completeness. And I find it fascinating that, you know, the last line of the Kaddish, and, and there are different forms of the Kaddish, but they all end with Oseh Shalom. And that when one thinks about someone's life, be it no matter how long it was or even short, we have to come to some resolution that it was complete. Isn't that fascinating? The word peace, hello, goodbye, is also completeness. And uh, I just find that fascinating. I too find it fascinating. Thank you. You're welcome. And then also, you know, when it comes to the tahara, the purification, the idea of treating the deceased with a tremendous amount of respect. I mean, this might sound silly to your listeners, but the deceased is always covered. So when they're physically washing them before they do the ritual purification, they'll move the sheet and they'll wash the arm, they'll put it back. And it's, again, the sign of respect now, it's really fascinating going back to giving people comfort. Now that we're in this world of transgender and how do I identify? And it's helping people say, listen, my, my loved one identified as, as a male, though your female genitalia, we find a group of people, the Hever Kedisha, a special group, a more liberal group, that'll come in. And can you imagine... The, the, the comfort that they're getting being A, not judged, but B, having all the same rights and rituals and, and privileges that they thought maybe they couldn't have. And that's, that's something that's relatively new in, in our society. And there again, we just want to say yes and give comfort. So that Tahara, which was just purification, is, uh, is, is available to anyone. There's a real poetry to that type of completeness, right? Where someone who was denied dignity and sometimes rights could die complete in the instance that you describe. That's pretty powerful, man. I think so. 
you had mentioned Shiva in your previous commentary. You know, first, maybe for our listeners who might not know what Shiva is, can you kindly offer us a sense of what it means to sit Shiva? Yeah, so the word Shiva comes from the Hebrew word of Sheva, seven. Some people think it comes from the word shave to sit, but it, it's seven. So in the Jewish world, we have different stages of grief. So you have the first seven days, and then 30 days, and then 11 months for a parent. But technically, we're in mourning for a parent 11 months, and then for a spouse, for a child, and for a sibling, it's 30 days. And that that whole concept is fascinating, too, of how that arrived. But I, I rarely go to Shiva's unless they're very close friends of mine, because I think for me it's a slippery slope. Why did David show up to this one, but not to that one? And, and my, my feeling is I just want to be there for my friends or for people that I feel close to. But it's a period of time for seven days where people just come and they, they sit and you can reminisce about the person who died or reconnect. It's an, it's really, a, I think, a, a psychological benefit for our community to sit seven days. Now, keep in mind, I will say, you know, I, I teach a lot of classes and people will say, what kind of Jewish person are you? I'm like, I'm ish. You know, I, I don't think <laughs> myself, you know, Orthodox, conservative, reform. I'm Jewish. I'm part of the community. And I try to know a little bit about our, 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 our traditions. I know more than some and a lot less than most. You know, so, but but I, I totally buy into the, the concept of Shiva, not just from a religious standpoint, but from a psychological standpoint. I, I remember when my mother died, and I was actually there when she died. I watched her take her last breath. To sit for seven days, I think it was great. You know, We got a chance to be with family and to, to reflect on her life and to be with friends, and to be with people that knew my mom. So to me, that was, a, that was really good. It was very hel- uh, helpful for me. Yeah, well, I'm sorry you lost your mom. And I know that even in the work you do, it, it couldn't have made it a, a dash easier to, to lose your mother. So sorry for your loss, man. Oh, thank you. We all go through it. Yeah, it's a thing, isn't it? So you said there that uh, part of your work is speaking at, at, at colleges. Uh, maybe I could get you to talk about that. Like, what are the most important lessons you're trying to impart on your audiences when you speak at colleges? Well, it depends on, on who the audience is. So tomorrow I'm speaking at Loyola University via Zoom, uh, the Graduate School of Social Work. And... So what I try to really impart on them is the value of the work they do, how important it is that we work together as social workers and funeral directors. Also, I want to tap into what their personal feelings are. And the, and the way that that's done is really giving them the opportunity to ask whatever they want to ask, however they want to ask it, to address their personal views. Then we talk about the greater views. What do you wish more social workers and aspiring social workers knew about death and grief and how to handle it? I don't necessarily know that that's what I, I want them to know as it relates to me and my profession. I find it highly uncomfortable when a social worker calls me 
or working with a hospice, and I love the concept of hospice, is um, what's your cheapest? Tell me your pricing. And, and the first thing I, I say to them is, okay, do you want to know anything about what I do? Do you want to understand the process of which we will operate? Because the, I think when we put dollars in front of service, it, it, it just discounts everything. And, and, and I've said to some social workers, maybe I'm not the company you want to work, that you want us to work for you. Because if you don't want to know about what I do, and just like, listen, I've been in therapy on and off for my whole life. It's not like what the therapist is going to charge me. It's like, how are you going to help me? How are you going to walk, you know, help me through this process? That's, that's like number one for, for me. Two is I, th I think when people are dying, they want to be comforted in the traditions of which they grew up. It's fascinating. They, they just want to go back to when they were children, you know, in some ways. And sometimes people don't understand that. For instance, even with, in, my, in my world, I know, like, if a family wants to be served by one of our female funeral directors, I don't get offended at all. Like, to me, they're telling me what they want, and I think that's great. Or they say, you know, I'd like to deal with someone younger or someone older. And it's the same thing in their world, too. And you can't just sit there and say, well, I'm the social worker, and I, I know what's best for you. And I, I, There's a story that uh, comes to mind. I, I went to a hospice years and years ago. This woman I know was dying, and she was a, tr a traditional woman, and she wanted me to assure her that she just had her, her nails done and that, that she didn't want the nail polish to be removed. And I said to her, I will find a group of people that will follow the traditions of our people, and maybe they won't notice the, the nail polish, so to speak. <laughs> you can't say to them, you know, don't take it off. But, you know, there's, there are ways of... of communicating something that was important to the deceased. And then she said to me, listen, I really, I said, you know, is there anything I can do for you? She goes, I would love a hot fudge Sunday." I just remember the social worker or nurse in that room was saying, it's really not good for her. And I'm just thinking, do you not know where you are? I mean, we're in a hospice room yeah. and this woman is dying. I'm a funeral director. She's telling me what she wants. You know, so we got her a hot fudge Sunday. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it seems like the reasonable move. Yeah. So maybe I could push into this just a little bit, um, because I think it's potentially instructive for, for me and for our listeners here. You go to colleges and universities and you talk to social workers, you talk to uh, funeral directors in training, stuff like this, right? Yes, and also camps and Hebrew schools and senior centers and, you know, people that are taking classes at the community college. Yeah. So you have a lot of experience. You have a lot of stories. You have a lot of hard-earned wisdom and my experiences. You're a great guy to talk with and you're a great guy to listen to. So people give you the microphone, literally and metaphorically. And I guess I wonder what you wish more people knew about the work of the funeral director and what you wish they knew about life and death that you can share with them in these contexts? Well, the first thing is that, that it, affects, it affects us too. 
that we are human beings and that we're not just death mongers, if you will. You know, it's like going back to that story that woman said, oh, you're just used to it. The day I get totally used to it is the day I'm going to retire. The other thing is, I don't think being knowledgeable or, or being cognizant of one's end of life is a negative. So such as, are your finances in order? Are you leaving a mess for people? You know, so how do you conduct your life while you're healthy, right? So you want to make sure that your your spouse or your partner and your children are, are, are taken care of. You know, so when one dies, are we leaving them with a pile of bills and a pile of uh, just, uh, you know, frustrating paperwork to go through? If one lives their life thinking that tomorrow is their last day, I can tell you personally, I have a death drawer in my office. It has my will, trusts, things like that. I have boxes in the lower level of the funeral home that are marked open when I die. And the whole idea is for my kids or my, my wife to go through and say, oh, this is funny. Then they throw it away. You know what I mean? Or, or this I'm going to keep. Or this is a funny picture or a card or, or something that I wrote or something that I saved that I want them to have. So I, I, that's what I do like in my own life. And I'm not overly uh, morbid. I think that we need to live life that way. You know, try to avoid, you know, the confrontation that doesn't have to happen. You know, and, and, and I think that that comes with, with wisdom. I, I had a mentor who used to say to me, everybody gets older, but not everybody grows up. Yeah. I just want to, to live life and go through this with the least amount of frustration, with the least amount of confrontation, because I know one day it's going to be over and I don't want people to have a bad taste about me or, or me dying with, you know, uh, hard feelings towards people. And I see a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, life can get complicated in that way. Hey, listen, I think it's because of that type of hard-earned wisdom that you just shared and, and the, the, the decency at the core of what you just said, that sometimes you're, you're called to speak at a funeral. And it strikes me as an exceedingly difficult task to deliver a eulogy to an audience of grieving people. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you craft a, a eulogy. So I just did one for a friend of mine who, who uh, is really one of my, uh, a very close friend of mine who's got stage four cancer in uh, different parts of his body. Hey, sorry. And he actually does work for us. Uh, he's our advertising guru. And I'm very close with him. And he asked me to write a eulogy. And, and um, so in this situation, um, you know, he's an artist, so... I, I just talked about his family, but also in, in the Bible about certain, there's certain characters who are artists. The, typically what I do is when someone asks me to speak uh, or to help them officiate a funeral, I don't have anything prepared other than I think about uh, like what's going on in the Torah portion, you know, the weekly uh, Torah section. I'll listen to the, the, the prior eulogies. I'll listen, you know, also because I was the funeral director making those arrangements, I have insight to the family. And I try to, off the cuff, I mean, with no notes, uh, I try to weave everything together with, uh, with what the family said 
and from the knowledge that I have about the person and the, the traditions of our people. And I, I've been very lucky that I, I have no problem doing that. And also I want people to walk away from the eulogy that I say, speak of with uh, some form of task, uh, be it to remember the person who died, to do something nice in memory of the person who died, uh, or just to recognize that we're all frail and we're all going through this path together and that maybe it's a, we should have a little bit more compassion. There's a beautiful tradition in the uh, Chabad or the Lubavitch uh, community that the, when, when men button their coats, they, the, the left goes first and then the right. Versus, you know, if you were to put a suit on, Daniel, you, you, know, you know, it's, it's the right first and the left, right? The left goes over and you button your, your coat. Yeah, yeah. So why do, why do they do it that way? Well, the left represents the law, that the law always goes first. And now keep in mind, most people are righties. So the left is the least dominant hand. So we have to say, though, when, when, when making decisions, the, the law goes first. But what's fascinating, even in this very traditional community, the right represents compassion. And that's the most dominant hand. And the compassion always covers the law. There are just so many deep-seated lessons in that. So when giving a eulogy, you know, there are facts, and then, then you talk about compassion, and, and you just weave that in. And, and the most important thing that I want people to walk away with is that we're all in this together, and that uh, if we're fortunate to have a family that loves us and takes care of us, then let's celebrate that, and let's acknowledge that. We need to say, okay, how do we aspire to be better human beings? And how do we aspire to be better, you know, in, in familial relationships? And I think that that's all weaved in to the person who died. I really admire the way you speak about compassion and empathy. And I have the sense that your sense of compassion and your sense of empathy has evolved with age. It's evolved with your experience. And I wonder if I could invite you to talk about how your work has evolved over your decades in the field. I have to go back to my mentor. And he used to say, you can't put an old head on young shoulders. <laughs> uh, he, he was a great guy. His name was Joe Roth. And uh, he hired me and he... Uh, you know, I, I used to just, you know, uh, take in his uh, wisdom. Uh, and then his best friend, which you know, is a, a man named Leon Wolin, who became a mentor of mine. Oh. And it's just very uh, incestuous in some ways because I'm very close with Leon. But I think it's his life. And if you're open to seeing what life has to offer in, in its goodness and its, its hardness, that you do evolve and, and, you know, you get beaten up, you try to protect yourself, but you also try to do the best you can. That's really what it is. And I think that the, the, there's a great wisdom of getting older. You know, I wish, you know, it sounds trite, but I wish I knew then what I know now. Yeah. Youth is definitely wasted in the young. Can I really quickly tell you my favorite Leon Wolin story? Sure. My aunt Cheryl was getting married and I was at her husband-to-be's bachelor party, Steve Rudy. I was 20 years old and uh, Leon was there and, uh, you know, it was a bachelor party. It wasn't um, 
an unbecoming type of bachelor party. But, you know, people were drinking and things were fun. And uh, uh, Lee walked in. I, uh, you know, gave him a big hug. And, uh, you know, he was getting older. This is 30 years ago. He was getting older. And I'm like, I'm like, Lee, how does it feel to be so old? He goes, as long as I can wake up in the morning and I can hang a wet towel off of my schwantz. He goes, I know I'm okay. <laughs> okay. So fast forward. Uh, you know, I, I graduate university. I moved to Barcelona and meet a woman and, uh, we, 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 we get married. And of course I invite Lee to the wedding. This is 2010. And, uh, there's Lee and I hadn't seen him in years. And, uh, he comes up to me, big hog. I just, you love to see the guy. And I whisper in his ear, I'm like, Hey, can you still hang a wet towel off of it? And he goes in perfectly unwollen fashion, eh, a washcloth. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he's 96. I know. Fucking love that guy. Love his kids too. Um, all right. That's neither here nor there. Um, yeah. Like they say, wisdom comes with age and, and you got it in spades. And I, I've been loving just learning from you here in this conversation. But I got to respect your time also. So maybe we should start to drive this train into this station. Listen, David, I love stories. It's at the core of what I do. And I was hoping that we could begin to wrap this thing up by having you tell me the story of one professional triumph and one professional failure. And maybe we should uh, start with the failure so we could end uh, on a note of triumph. Okay. Well, I can tell you the failure has been um, with people, um, hiring people, uh, giving them opportunity, and um, just just failing. Uh, a very close friend of mine said the three hardest parts, and he quoted his father, the three hardest parts about running any kind of business are people, people, and people. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I find that to be very true. However, having said that, I think my great successes really are my people, because I've I've found many people that I work with that are just super nice people, and to watch them grow, and we have no glass ceilings here, we have no no one's boxed into a job, so to speak. You know, if they can do more, and they they and they show promise. They can just grow, however, to whatever they want to do. I've had staff come that they were in high school and continue through college. I had one employee; she was selling sneakers at a, at a store in a mall, and my son needed shoes. So the way she handled herself, I said, "You know what? Uh, you know what do you want to do?" And she says, "Well, you know, this is okay, but I'd rather do more." and you know, and uh, and there was a spark with her, and and I paid her a few extra dollars more an hour. She started to work for us while she was in high school. Put herself through community college, college, stayed another year, and then she wanted to go on, you know, to her profession, and to and to to stay in communication. I just think it's like, oh my god, like this person, you know, we helped this person, but this person helped us. You know, and it was mutually beneficial. And to, and to see some of my funeral directors 
we serve their family and they wanted to come work here and work with us and to watch them blossom. So I would tell you success and failure is, is the same topic. It's people yeah. and it's the relationships. And uh, for those that did not work out that I thought would, you know, yeah, that, that's hard because you put your heart and soul into uh, trying to get them to develop. And it's also your ego saying, oh, I failed. But the great successes are my people. And uh, if there's a, a legacy that I, I would like to have is besides serving the community like we do, is, is affecting the lives of, of the people that I work with and watching them grow and to be just great people. I love that, man. And I should confess to you and to my dear listeners here that there is this whole business that you run. You know, you're a manager and a leader and... At some point, you have to look at the books or talk to the guy who looks at the books more frequently. And I thought long and hard about the degree to which or the ways in which I wanted to you know, hear you talk about that. And frankly, I hope you don't mind. I, I just didn't want to lean into that side of your work at all. I want you to know that I acknowledge that that is not an insubstantial part of your work. You have to manage and lead and do what I'm loosely going to call regular business stuff. Um, but I hope you're cool with our conversation being focused on things other than the business. You cool with that? Yes. Sweet. And with that, I have but one more request. I was hoping that you could recommend to our listeners something that... Uh, illustrates or, or, or maybe something that influences what you do and how you think about it. This is wide open. This is your chance to give a shout out to something or a recommendation, and we will link to that in our show notes. Well, before I do that about business, I do not look at financial statements, maybe but twice a year because my accountant forces me to do that. But the metrics of which we operate the company are, are contrarian. And keep in mind, I have an MBA in finance, which doesn't really help me. But I, but one of my mentors said to me uh, years ago when I worked for him, David, go get an advanced degree. This is what I think important. And I said, are you going to pay for it? He goes, no. Are you going to give me extra time off? He goes, no. And uh, and I was like, okay. But, but I listened to him. And let me tell you, it paid off that 1.8 million seconds of class time. However, the metrics we do are, are, are as follows. We look at surveys and uh, what people are responding to our surveys and also reviews, be it on Google or, or other uh, formats. That's one. Two, we do look at volume. We, we, you know, we're humble that people trust us, but I do, you know, you have to say, you know, how many funerals are we doing? And that's all internal. It's never discussed with anybody other than, you know, my staff knows because they just know. And then the last is, uh, my bookkeeper sends me a report once a, a week, basically with just how much money's in the bank or the lack of money that's in the bank. And it, 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 I don't know if, if you ever saw the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, but there's a great scene when there's a run on the bank and Jimmy Stewart puts uh, $2 in the safe. And he goes, there's mama dollar and papa dollar. And hopefully, you know, by tomorrow morning, there'll be some baby dollars in the, in the safe. <laughs> so I don't, I don't look at percentage points. I don't look at and net profits. I just want to make sure that my staff are taken care of, that all my bills are paid. And the reality is, listen, you know, I have what I need. My wants are, are pretty minimal. Um, I try to do some charity work, 
And, and having said that, you know, money doesn't drive. For me, if you do good work, the money will be there. If you chase money and you're constantly chasing the holy buck, you're never going to have enough. You're never going to have enough watches on your arm or cars in your garage that are going to give you fulfillment. So to me, the way I operate a company, and I've had, I've had people, uh, professional consultants come in and say, David, this is not how you run a company. And, I, and my response is, okay, that's fine. However, we're still around. My staff doesn't leave. You know, we have a, a retention rate that is it's, it's phenomenal. Our reviews are great. So tell me the problem again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, if I have what I need and I have, you know, I have food in my refrigerator and clothes on my back and all my staff, they have health insurance and things like that. Like, so everybody has their own view of success. I, I'm okay with uh, just who we are, you know, and, and what we do. Love it. Um, but as far as uh, the, the shout out, you know, uh, I've had some great teachers in the world, and, and I think that if there's one great bit of advice I would give anybody is find a mentor and find mentors. And if you're lucky to have a mentor, learn, but also pass that on and, and as you get older, to be a mentor to others. I, I feel like I, I live a blessed life, you know, that I have an opportunity to help people on a daily basis. And uh, so... I think that uh, it wraps up with, you know, how we began. You know, I'm fortunate I can uh, care for the dead and I can comfort the mourner and I can just exist by trying to do nice things for uh, the people in our, in our community. Well, David, I feel blessed that you joined me in conversation on the podcast and you brought tremendous comfort to my family when my mom passed. And I imagine you're going to do the same. Uh, when my dad passes, it was comforting to speak with you. And in addition to that, it was a bona fide joy. Thank you so much for being on For a Living. Thank you. Take care. All right, my friends, that was my conversation with David Jacobson. Like I said, beacon of wisdom. So follow this show wherever you get podcasts, maybe leave a review. If you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if For a Living means something to you, and you've got the means to give a few, please support me over at patreon.com slash for a living. With season nine all wrapped up, little bow on top, just in time for my work as a teacher to kick into high gear. I'm going to take a couple weeks to reflect on this project, maybe develop a vision for season 10. In the meantime, my advice to you, check out some old episodes. Now, by my reckoning, every episode in season nine is a gift. That's just how I feel about these conversations. Totally grateful for each and every one of them. So I don't know, if you want to meet my next door neighbor, tune into the episode with Juliana Zoimo. She's a life and career coach. A lot of takeaways from that episode. And like I said, if you want to meet one of my dearest friends, Dr. Patrick Baker is your guy. My guy is your guy now. Love it. Of course, all eight seasons are yours. You're invited to explore. Please, explore. Be my guest. You dive into the back catalog, and I'll get to work on season 10. I got plans. I got plans. Fun plans. Some funky plans. A lot to look forward to. Till then, big hugs. Wishing you all health and wellness. Enjoy watching spring blossom. And I'll look forward to being with you soon. 
Take care, kids. <laughs>